Whenever you are tempted to think that history is out of control, that the society we live in is going down the tubes at an accelerated rate, understand this, that God is still God, still reigning, still sovereign, still majestic, still supreme, orchestrating and engineering and bringing to pass His purpose and His will and fashioning and shaping all of history. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Scripture reading today comes from the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, turn to the very last book as we turn to Revelation chapter 5 today. We're beginning a new series of studies in Revelation, and you'll find chapter 5 on page 1918-1918 of the Church Bible. If you were with us last year, January and February, we spent those early months of the new year exploring chapters 1 to 4, and we hope during January and February this year to tackle chapters 5 through 12. So that's where we're going over the next couple of months together. We break into Revelation at chapter 5, verse 1. The Apostle John writes these words, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. It's very healthy on a Sunday morning to ask, first of all, each time we come to a new study, who is writing? And the person writing here is the Apostle John. And New Testament scholars tell us it's the Apostle John for several reasons. 
Number one, the person writing understood and had a background in Jewish history and heritage. Number two, the person knows the Scriptures. Number three, the person understands theology, and that certainly is the case as you get deeper and deeper into Revelation. Number four, the early church credited John with writing these epistles, and there isn't really any overwhelming evidence to suggest otherwise. Some New Testament scholars disagree, but the majority are comfortable with the Apostle John writing Revelation, and for those reasons. Number two, when was he writing? He was writing around the year 95 AD. And why is that significant? It's significant for this reason. John was writing to seven churches in an area called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. You'll see at the bottom of your notes, there's a little map there which highlights for you where the seven churches were to be found. And John is writing in warm pastoral tones to lay out for them a number of spiritual imperatives so they can take those lessons and apply them, but he's also seeking to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. And he's doing that for this reason. The Roman emperor Domitian was in power at that time. Now, the church had seen persecution during the reign of Nero around 53 AD to 65 AD. Nero was not a good guy, but the persecution that Nero initiated tend to be localized to particular cities or regions. But Domitian took it much further, and he introduced empire-wide persecution, probably for the first time. It was heading in that direction, and certainly Domitian was involved in that. First century historians tell us that about 40,000 people, imagine that, 40,000 people lost their lives because of their faith under the emperor Domitian. John is writing to encourage the folks in these seven churches that even though they're under persecution, God has not abandoned them, and He has not given up on them. Now, John himself was in exile. He had been arrested because of his faith. He was exiled to the island called Patmos. Some of us were there a couple of years back, maybe four or five years ago now. And to be on Patmos and go to stand where tradition tells us John wrote Revelation is a very moving experience. It's quite special. And John tells us in chapter 1, he was caught up in the Spirit. And that, in essence, means this, that in the midst of his time of prayer one morning, his heart and mind and soul and imagination was caught up by the Spirit of God and taken to another place. That sounds a bit odd, but let me explain to you what I mean. John was caught up by the person of God, his character, and he was given a vision of heaven itself. And in chapter 4 and chapter 5, John is writing about his experience experience in heaven and what he is seeing and hearing. And so, in this chapter, you get to understand history from God's perspective, from an eternal perspective. 
And God, in fact, encourages you, and you're going to hear me talk about this in a minute or two, to see things through His eyes. And that's the background and the backdrop to chapter 5. So, having said all that, let's begin chapter 5. And he begins, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, let me pause right there. John begins, Then I saw. In verse 2, he uses the same language, I saw. Verse 6, he says it again, I saw. Verse 11, look, I saw. And it's the same language that the angel used when he came to the shepherds on Christmas Eve. We looked at it two weeks ago when the shepherds were absolutely stunned into silence and were terrified when Gabriel appeared and said to them, look, behold, today in the town of David a Savior has been born, and He is Christ the Lord. Now, if you get a sense of drama and excitement in that announcement, that's what John is doing in chapter 5. He's saying, look, understand, he's about to lay out for them a spiritual imperative that unless we grasp with both hands and apply it to our heart and mind and soul, we will never grow in our faith. We will never develop in the way that God is calling us to unless we grasp this primary reality. And John lays it out for us here. He is seeking to move them to maturity in their faith and the first thing he teaches them is this. And he longs and is passionate for them to get this. And he wants them first and foremost to be utterly, utterly in awe of God. That's what he's wanting for them. That's what he's longing for them. That's what Christians in any age long for. And John encourages his readers and us to look with incredulity on the eternal, the infinite, the immeasurable, the incomprehensible wonder and love and grace and holiness of God, and it should leave us gasping for breath. And that's why John lays it out the way he lays it out in chapter 5. So, let me ask you, and some of you are fed up hearing me ask this question, but it's appropriate and applicable to every one of us this morning, still in these early days of a new year, beginning a new week and a new series of studies, let me ask you this. Have you ever, or when was the last time you found yourself in prayer, engaging with God's Word, and being utterly overwhelmed by His love and His grace and the largeness of 
God himself, where you shook your head in wonder and in awe at who he is and how much he loves you. That's what John is seeking his readers to get. That's the experience he longs for them to understand. That's what's going on here. He wants them to grasp the magnitude that God is transcendent in majesty and imminent right here in love and grace. That's the spiritual imperative he wants us to get. Now, let me pause for a second, and we'll come back. Around late October, early November, I got to the point where I realized I was needing new glasses. I probably waited six months before I went to see my uh, optometrist. I should have gone earlier, but my Scottish heart was saying, no, you don't need to spend more money, just let it go, you'll be fine. But of course, when I went to see him, he gave me an eye test. And of course, he covered this eye, and I read the letters, and then the other eye, and I tried to cheat, and he caught me. Uh, and so there I was, trying to pretend it wasn't as bad as it was, but it was. And his assistant looked at him, and he looked at his assistant, and I could see that knowing glance, and both of them are looking and shaking their head and thinking, why did this idiot wait this long to come and get new lenses? And I did. And they came in about a week later. I went down, picked them up, tried them on, looked in the mirror, read some text, and I thought, yeah, this is pretty good, and they look okay. They were expensive, way more than they had been seven years ago, but maybe I should go more often. And so I came out into the parking lot, and I thought, wow, I can read my registration plate. What has happened? And it was because I had new lenses. Now, let me take that a step further. Some of us wear lenses that are shaped and fashioned by the culture and the society we live in. Those lenses allow us to filter every experience, both old and new, relationships with families, books we read, movies we go and see, friendships on Facebook and Twitter, are all filtered through the lenses of culture and society and previous experiences. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But what John is seeking to encourage us to do is this, is to take the lenses we currently have and then take the lenses that God provides in Scripture and add it to our current experience, and allow us to see reality as it is from a biblical perspective. See it through His eyes. Come to a new appreciation of His work in your life, and in the world around us, and in all of history. See it through His perspective. Take those biblical lenses, add them to what you have, and suddenly you discover reality as it truly is. Because the Scripture tells us again and again and again that when we see things 
and perceive things and understand them from God's perspective, they are not always as they initially seemed to be. Now, let me say that again. There was a lot in there. When we see them from His perspective, through biblical lenses, things are not always the way they initially seem. And that's what's about to happen to John. Here was John in the throne room of God, and that's the first thing he gets to us. After he says, look, perceive, comprehend, understand, he sees a throne. Doesn't immediately focus on the four living creatures. Doesn't immediately focus on the scroll. Doesn't focus on all the other things we're about to see. But he focuses on the throne. And there on that throne sits the living God in all of His splendor and majesty. And John is saying, whenever you are tempted to think that history is out of control, that the society we live in is going down the tubes at an accelerated rate, understand this, that God is still God, still reigning, still sovereign, still majestic, still supreme, orchestrating and engineering and bringing to pass His purpose and His will and fashioning and shaping all of history. For He sits on that throne, and that's what John wants us to understand. That's the spiritual imperative that he is still in control. He has you in the palm of his hand. He will not abandon you. He will not let you go. And can you imagine what that meant to the folks in these seven churches in Asia Minor who were under persecution, who in all probability had lost family members as martyrs, and they are grieving heartbroken, saying, Father, what are you doing? Why would you allow this to happen? Why haven't you intervened? Oh, God, what on earth are you doing? Only to be told, only to be reassured, only to be strengthened, only to be encouraged that God had not abandoned them, but He was working out His purposes and plans for the salvation of humanity and he was still in control. And then John focuses on a scroll, a scroll that has been written on on both sides, and that's most unusual. I can't think of any other scroll in all antiquity that is written on both sides. And it has seven seals, and it is rolled up and it's helpful for you to know that in Revelation, whenever you come across the number seven, it means perfection. It means completeness. And John is telling us this, that God had in His right hand as He sat on the throne. Why His right hand? Because that, in terms of imagery and metaphor and motif, is where the power is. And God held in His right hand all of history past and it was coming to its consummation and culmination because God Himself would see it through to its end. He is and was and always will be the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, and He holds it in His hand. 
in all perfection, nothing missed out, nothing overlooked, nothing ignored. He had it there in the palm of his hand, perfectly sealed. And notice what John does in verse 4. The angel said, who is worthy to open the scroll? No one, nor in heaven or earth or under the earth. No one. And John weeps, and John weeps, I suspect, out of frustration. And I think he weeps grieving for the folks he's writing to because their lives are being taken. And the frustration is real. What is happening, Father? Why are you not intervening? Why would you allow this? And John is grieving because he sees no end in sight until he is told, Look, a lamb who was slain, And then the imagery changes in a heartbeat from a lamb to a lion, the lion of Judah who comes from the root of David. In other words, the risen, exalted Christ himself steps up and is the only one who can take the scroll. And he breaks the seals and he opens the scroll And what is the instinctive, natural response of everyone there in the throne room of God? What did He do? The four corners of the earth, the four creatures who represent all of the created order from its beginning to its end, the 24 elders, possibly representative of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Judah, we can't be certain, but representing all that God has done in history and all that is still to come. And they bow down, and they worship. And they are lost in wonder, love, and praise, and the love of God overwhelms them. And there's nothing else for them to do. Worthy, they cry. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and your blood has purchased men for God. And all of history and the salvation of God comes to fruition at that point. And in this year, Some of you will have children and grandchildren who will go to school for the first time. Others will have children and grandchildren who will graduate from college for the first time and go into the workforce. Others will fall in love and become engaged and married and move home. Some will get promotion. And sadly, some family members, grandparents, parents, great-grands, will pass into eternity this year. But regardless of what you are facing, and please do not interpret that as in any way marginalizing your pain. The very opposite. Regardless of what you go through, regardless of how difficult, regardless of how challenging, He will still be there on the throne, deeply in love with you, looking out for your best, and bringing to fruition His purpose and plans for all eternity. 
and we get those challenges and difficulties and problems in perspective when we come back to Revelation 5, and we fall down in utter adoration of Him who is infinite, incomprehensible, transcendent in majesty and imminent in love and grace. There is no better way to start a new week in these early days of a new year than to remind ourselves not only does He have the whole world in His hands, He has all of history, and you are right there with Him. So, if you're tempted this week, to give up, to think, why bother? Come back to Revelation 5 again. Immerse yourself in the wonder of it all, and grasp again how much He loves you and longs for you to take those spiritual lenses to add them to your life, see things from His perspective, and then to have the greatest privilege of all, to be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. What a powerful reminder in these early days of a new year to be reminded that you are holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And Father, we pray for each other and the year ahead, and ask that you would continue to hold us close, lead us, guide us, encourage us, strengthen us, and grant us, please, O oh God, to see every aspect of our life from your perspective. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Hargrove, and I'm the Ignite Worship Service Pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. And at Ignite, we like to do four things. We call them the four C's. One, we want to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Secondly, we want to build community. That means we connect with each other in the service as well as outside the service. Third, we want to celebrate what God is doing among us. And fourth, we want to be connectional, connecting the Bible to everyday life as we go live, work, play, and stay in this community. So come at 1045 on Sundays to experience at night and see what God is doing with and among us.